0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Jason Choi, head of research at Spartan Capital, a long short crypto hedge fund based in Hong Kong. Jason joins us for the very first episode of our new DeFi Defined series. Over the next few weeks, I will be joined by traders, investors, and other thought leaders in the crypto space to cover all things DeFi. In this episode, Jason and I unstack how DeFi fits into Spartan's investment thesis and the fund's due diligence process for evaluating DeFi projects and tokens. For the non-farmers listening to this episode, Jason breaks down Yield Farming 101 and offers his observations on the different market participants involved. We also chat about broader market trends and what's been fueling the recent ETH and BTC rally. All this and more. This conversation is packed with insights you don't want to miss out. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Jason. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Hey, Leslie. Really happy to be here. Jason, you host your own podcast called Block Crunch, and I'm really excited to bring you on as my guest today and to put you in the hot seat, so to say. You and I have known each other for some time now, but why don't you start us off with an intro for those of our listeners who don't already know who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, for sure. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. As you mentioned, I'm based here in Hong Kong. I actually grew up here in Hong Kong, but I did go to college in the States to study as an English major. But then I caught the startup bug when I was there, started doing some tech investing, and I helped started this venture fund that was backed by a bunch of tech executives, You know, folks from Tesla, Twitch, Twitter, and so on. And this was back in 2016 when I was a student uh, in the U.S. So my passion has always been more on the early stage tech side. And I was never really a huge markets guy, unlike a lot of the folks who are probably listeners of the show and a lot of the folks who got into crypto through trading. And then I spent a summer at a hedge fund just to kind of understand what was that world about, you know, and I was fascinated by really the intellectual challenge of markets and kind of thinking through what different levers would move different things. Later on, back in class, I actually discovered Bitcoin in a fintech course. It was one of the lessons in a whole course about fintech. Really? Yeah, so it was way ahead of its time. It was like 2016. So I started exploring what it is and figured out that, okay, this is really interesting because it combined elements of early stage tech and also trading. Right around when 2017 came around, there were kind of more exchanges and more altcoins started being listed on random exchanges. And then I think mid-2017, Binance started happening. So I started trading pretty heavily and got really hooked onto the whole crypto thing. So I, I started kind of reading every book and article that I could get my hands on. And when those ran out, I started the podcast that you mentioned called Block Crunch, which is basically an excuse for me to talk to folks who are a lot <laughs> smarter than myself and force them to talk to me for an hour every week. And I've been doing that for a little over um, two and a half years now. On the professional side, I was a management consultant, so I had some peripheral blockchain work there, and then I quit to invest full-time in crypto in late 2018.
0: That's incredible. So you started off really not having that much of a markets background, which is very important, right? As, as you can probably attest to now being in crypto, I feel like you need a bit of everything, having a markets knowledge, kind of thinking from a macro perspective, but also at the same time, having some sort of understanding of what's going on, on the trading side of things. You kind of need so many different aspects to be an effective allocator in this space. Did you think your time at the hedge fund really helped you gain better understanding of how to look at markets i
1: think i had a better appreciation for why it's interesting to so many people um but then the the actual kind of trading acumen um i think i started developing when i was trading my own capital and really growing that prop capital uh throughout 2017 and to to today Mm -hmm. and um obviously at first i had no um no kind of uh, intuition about risk management position sizing hedging didn't know anything about options or anything um so really in the past two and a half years it was a crash course so i kind of read everything i could find about futures and options i read everything i could find about traditional ethics trading and really just try to learn as much as possible from kind of traditional frameworks and try to apply them to crypto part of the benefit having not come from a traditional kind of actual trading background is i think about things from a very first principle perspective so at Spartan Capital, which is a fund I work with, I work with Kelvin, who has you know 20 years of experience in the markets. So I think that that's actually a really interesting dynamic where he brings that traditional risk management framework, and I bring in that kind of more crypto-native mentality, and it, it actually works out quite well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I imagine your time starting up Contrary Capital also helps give you investor experience, right? Having bootstrapped this probably with other founders. You said this was 2016 while you were still in college? Yeah. I
1: helped a really smart friend of mine called Eric Trzynski start this up at Penn, I think they've grown it to a community of over 100 people now, but the core team itself is three people. And a fun story is that one of the former analysts at Multicoin Capital, uh, Ben Sparango, was also one of the folks who helped started this. Um, but he started it also um, in another college. So it was kind of like different colleges. We have our own pockets where we invest in founders who are you know, either MBAs or maybe grad students, maybe some undergrads as well. But that was more of a VC approach. So less about allocating capital in liquid markets.
0: Got it. Okay. And how did you secure funding from the names that you mentioned like twitch and facebook these guys
1: fortunately i i wasn't involved in the fundraising process so i didn't have to worry about that i was i was mostly in charge of kind of building up the partnerships from ground up kind of building up the pipelines sourcing companies Um, so i helped source the first deal from the university of pennsylvania which was the hr kind of management software started by a warren grad there But for me, it was mostly on the deal sourcing side, building up the partnerships that's required to start something like this. Whereas Eric, the guy who was leading it at that time, he would be going out and trying to raise money.
0: I see. Got it. Now, bring it back to your time with Spartan. You know, you had just come back to Hong Kong. How did you link up with Kelvin and the rest of the Spartan team?
1: So I spent a year as a management consultant in New York with Deloitte. Actually, at the time, I couldn't get a visa. You need ah one b visa to stay in New York. I didn't get it. So I came back to Hong Kong. I was kind of exploring. And I thought this was actually a great chance for me to jump into crypto full time, which is something that I've been toying around for a long time. I spoke with a few teams. And finally, I got referred by a friend to these guys called Spartan. So I flew to Singapore to meet with Melody and Casper, who are the founders of the Spartan Group. Just for your listeners, so Spartan Group has two businesses. We have a business in Singapore that's more of an advisory business. So imagine kind of an investment bank for crypto projects and crypto-related companies like exchanges and whatnot. Um, And then we have a hedge fund based in Hong Kong. I met up with Casper Melody. They introduced me to Kelvin, who was just starting out the hedge fund in Hong Kong at that time, late October in 2018. So that's when we started chatting. We found out that we have a lot in common and obviously a lot that is not in common as well, given that he has, you know, 20 years more experience than I have. I thought that was a really interesting <laughs> partnership to have. So we just started it together in late October 2018, and we've been working together ever since.
0: Nice. It was probably a good time to start a fund when the markets are, you know, ripping as they, I guess, now are, maybe, <laughs> uh, depending on how, you know, people think of uh, what's what's happening with this sort of simultaneous pumping of. ETH and Bitcoin, which is kind of strange, actually, how, how it all all came about in, in the past few days. But I guess there are a lot of fundamental factors that drove this ETH rally, which we can talk about a little bit later. Here you are at Spartan, and I'm super grateful to have you on to help kick off our DeFi series. It's been all the rage, but past the headline news about the price action There are actually really promising teams that have seemed to be building real products and getting a lot of traction because they found product market fit within the DeFi community. I know Spartan works with quite a few of these projects. But I guess it would be good to start on square one and talk more in depth about your hedge fund structure and your thesis. So as I understand, Spartan Capital is a long, short hedge fund that invests primarily in token-based investments. What's the fund's thesis and and why the constraint to limit your investments to tokens?
1: Yeah, so... Well, let me touch on the first part of that, which is, you know, why are we a long, short hedge fund when there's so many kind of venture funds? So part of that is obviously Kelvin's background coming from deploying capital in public markets, previously helping manage, you know, a $6 billion fund called Indus Capital. So playing to that edge is something that uh, is important for us. And also what I think is interesting with crypto is that paradigms change every six months. Um, You know, two years ago, everyone was talking about uh, these kind of decentralized exchanges, which resemble centralized exchanges with their own order books. And then 12 months later, suddenly no one's really talking about them. And everyone's using these new types of exchanges called uh, automated market makers, these AMMs that people hear about a lot. So these paradigms change so fast that I thought it's actually incredibly difficult to be a venture investor that has a fund life of, say, 10 years, because you have to kind of predict what is going to happen in the next 10 years. Whereas for a liquid fund, you can evolve with the space. You can resize your conviction and adjust your positions as the space evolves. You're more concerned about how to push this space forward for the next six to 12 months than exactly what's going to happen in you know, 10, 12 years. So I think that structure is actually not so much a constraint, but actually allows us a lot of freedom. At the same time, there are a lot of pricing inefficiencies when it comes to tokens. You see these token valuations that People are always scratch their heads at. Um, so that's why we give ourselves the flexibility to go short as well in case things get overheated, really just as a way for us to hedge the book and also allow us to go longer on projects that we believe in. But for the most part, we are very long biased. We're dedicated to the long-term development of the space and we take a very fundamental based approach to researching different projects. Um, so it's not dissimilar to how a VC would say due diligence a project, but we also have that element where we can manage the exit and manage kind of the conviction for different projects.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point you make as a fundamental investor needing to understand what the drivers are within the space, which as you say, constantly evolve, right? And in crypto, it seems like every couple weeks, something is different. There's another thing in the market people can point to and say, okay, well, I guess this is what's really driving this rally now for this particular token. You know, in order to have a macro understanding of what's going on, I feel like we need to go back to the fundamentals. So that's really what I want to talk to you about in relation to DeFi. There's just so much going on that it's so hard to keep up. The inner workings of DeFi are super complex. I wanted to point to actually a very interesting tweet that I saw the other day. Sing Soro asked Crypto Twitter to explain DeFi as completely as possible in a single tweet. So I'll turn the question to you. Can you give our listeners a high-level breakdown of DeFi in 280 characters? Oh, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one. So I would say DeFi enables you to... I guess manage your own personal finances, but in a way that you don't have to trust any third parties. That's probably way more than 280 characters. But even that is a limiting definition because it's really a new paradigm. At, at, at the risk of sounding too fluffy, um, it, it, it is a new paradigm in the sense that you see these new financial primitives, um, like ways for people to trade, to save, to earn, to lend, to borrow, to speculate completely trustlessly. And all of these protocols can work together, uh, meaning unlike traditional fintech companies where you have uh, silos for Robinhood, silos for Stripe. Sure, they have their paid APIs, but for, for the most part, these companies operate in complete silos. Whereas for DeFi, imagine if you know Stripe and Robinhood and PayPal, all of these things are completely open and they can pluck into each other, use each other's liquidity and users without permission. That's kind of the DeFi vision. That's definitely way more than 280 characters,
0: though. (laughs) But that last illustration that you gave, that's composability, right? Right. That's the symbol, I guess, of the DeFi space or what people point to as just like this magical thing that enables the coming together of all these different protocols. We've seen that over the past few weeks, different projects building on each other. And that's how the whole yield farming craze kind of came about. Going back to Spartan and your involvement in DeFi, Kelvin mentioned in in a recent podcast that he was on, which I very much enjoyed listening to, that a quarter of your portfolio is allocated to DeFi. Are you looking to expand your portfolio in DeFi even more? If so, what are some key DeFi market trends that will continue to drive your investment confidence in the space?
1: Yeah, so I don't know when that podcast was recorded, but it's probably a little bit over a quarter now, given how some of the DeFi tokens have performed. It is one of a the core thesis because we think it's one of the lowest hanging fruits use cases for blockchain. There are a lot of talk about Web3, decentralized Twitter, decentralized Amazon back in 2017. And while these visions are really inspiring and compelling, they're more difficult to achieve, not just from a technological perspective, but because of the user friction that you impose, right? If you build an Amazon that's decentralized, unless the experience is 10x better than the current Amazon, no one's going to go over. But on the other hand, DeFi is enabling people to do things that they simply cannot do in the traditional Web2 world. So that's why there's product market fit. And that's why we're focusing a lot of our time actually in the past 12 months, um, just looking into DeFi protocols, trying to understand where the space is heading and We built a pretty strong thesis on a few protocols and we were able to catch the upcycle for DeFi. And we were pretty happy about that. And we're definitely continuing to track some of the newer projects that came out in the past six months or so.
0: What's different about the decision making or due diligence process, you know, investing in DeFi projects versus, say, investing in equity within the broader crypto market?
1: The main differentiation isn't so much between equity and tokens uh, because there are DeFi projects that raise in equity as well. So for instance, some of the first generation DeFi projects like DYDX or Dharma, they didn't really have a token and it was deliberate, but they raised in equity, I think with the potential to offer a token in the future. I think that the bigger differentiation is between the base layer ones that you hear a lot about back in 2017, like the EOS or like the Tron, the Ethereum killers versus DeFi. I really think that the people who are qualified to evaluate the low level code of layer ones is a very very small subset of the entire crypto community whereas for defi as fundamentally consumer facing products for the most part they're much easier much more intuitive for investors to evaluate so when it comes to the difference between due diligence and kind of these different projects for layer ones you know i wouldn't be comfortable investing in a layer one unless i am really confident that technologically you know the cryptographic Primitives work. And for me to be able to make that judgment call, I need to have a certain degree of technical uh, capability. And not everyone can do that. Whereas for DeFi, it's much more intuitive in the sense that a lot of them today are almost mirrors or proxies of primitives that exist in the traditional finance world. So that due diligence process is more intuitive for most people. And that's why I think a lot of the funds and investors are also more interested in DeFi now than the layer ones as opposed to back in 2017.
0: Do you think at this point in time, given where DeFi is right now, and you know how much of a driver Ethereum has been in in the evolution of this space, do you think that there will be another Layer One out there that will supplant Ethereum as the base layer protocol?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to piss a lot of people off if, <laughs> by saying this, but I, I do think there is an opportunity for other Layer Ones. Um, I know all of the. All of the activity is pretty much taking place on Ethereum. And that's because liquidity begets more liquidity. Uh, If you just start a decentralized exchange on another chain with no assets there, it's incredibly hard to bootstrap liquidity and users. I think one of the miraculous things about Ethereum that is going to be impossible to replicate is actually ICOs. So I think a lot of people give ICOs a lot of flack for being very scammy. There are a lot of dubious projects, but it was also the only time that we'll see a mass asset creation event where you have thousands of new digital assets created on a base layer chain. Because now if anyone tries to do that, they will be heavily regulated. Whereas in 2017, we had a Cambrian explosion of literally thousands of Mm -hmm. assets. And these assets, some of them obviously are scams or dubious, but some of them also managed to evolve from what they were in 2017 into actual productive assets. And now these have planted the seeds for what we know as DeFi today. So for any other chain to replicate that, it's technologically not difficult, but from a a regulatory perspective, it's going to be very hard for them to recreate the ICO boom. So they're going to have a really tough path ahead of them to bootstrap the same amount of liquidity that Ethereum does. But one interesting piece of news that came out yesterday was FTX Exchange announced that they're building a low latency and high throughput DEX on a chain called Solana, which is optimized for high throughput. That I think is a sign that there's interest from projects on developing and other chains, especially given the relatively high guest cost that we've been seeing lately on Ethereum with more interest picking up in DeFi. So to sum it up, I do think that there is a chance for other chains. Do I think it's easy? I don't think so. I would probably place, you know, 50, 60% chance that Ethereum remains the winner in the next five mm-hmm. years. But I, I do think that if layer ones want to challenge Ethereum, now's the time, right? Right before Serenity transition to 2.0, right when gas fees are, you know, the center of attention, this is the time to pull the trigger.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like if you've been following the Ethereum project, you've been waiting for ETH 2.0 for a really <laughs> long time now. What's the benefit you think ETH 2.0 will have on Ethereum?
1: Yeah, so I think E 2.0 is kind of the full vision for Ethereum, right? I think Vitalik has been talking about this since day one. So theoretically, it should allow for, first of all, more efficiency by transitioning to proof of stake rather than proof of work. But it also brings up a lot of new challenges, like how do we deal with composability between shards? These are open technical problems that I don't have the expertise to evaluate on, but these are open questions that some of the smartest engineers in the world are still working on, and it's still an open debate. Um, so bringing mm-hmm. it back to the example of Solana, they are a chain that uses something called proof of history, which is very different from most of the other chains that are launching, including Ethereum 2.0, in the sense that they don't use sharding. They don't believe that sharding is good because they think that sharding would shard liquidity as well. If you have you know DeFi protocols living on different shards, how do they communicate with each other? So it's questions like that that makes it interesting time for other layer ones with drastically different value propositions to come to this stage and present themselves as an alternative for you know, alternative DeFi ecosystems. And I think we're starting to see that with Solana, and I don't think that's going to be the last example we see.
0: Right. You mentioned the FTX DEX. How will this be different from the other DEXs that we see in the space, like maybe just very high level?
1: Yeah. So most of the DEXs, I should say probably all of the DEXs today are built on Ethereum. Um, and for some of the maximally decentralized one Basically every click Every interaction with the DEX Is a transaction in the Ethereum network And as you know The Ethereum network transactions take some time And also require pretty high gas mm-hmm. costs Especially when the network is congested There are stories of people on Twitter Sharing how when they were interacting With some of the DeFi DEXs They needed to pay fees up to you know, 30 know $50 For a $10 transaction So obviously that prices a lot of the smaller guys out Whereas for Serum, which is this new Dex on FTX, and I'm not sponsored by them, Uh, I just think it's an interesting example. They are built on Solana, which is fundamentally different base layer, and they are optimized for throughput, perhaps at the expense of some more centralization but they do so by you know using very optimized hardware with very low level optimizations it's incredibly technical but it's a very very interesting idea and i definitely recommend people to check out some of the interviews that their ceo anatoly has done they have their own podcast as well where they explain kind of how Solana works but the main difference is that it's not built on ethereum and it's likely the first dex with this much attention that's not built on ethereum
0: All right, so we'll see how that evolves over time and how that deck's Uh, bootstraps liquidity, right, which is always the ultimate question um, for any exchange centralized or decentralized. um, How do you get people to trade? Definitely will be a topic that we cover in future episodes within this DeFi series. But coming back now to Spartan and your involvement in DeFi, what is one project that you guys have invested in that has been the the fastest at executing and doing things the right way?
1: Yeah, so we invested across a wide spectrum of defi projects um, i think one of the ones that we were particularly fond of that we were decently early investors in is one called synthetics and it is a synthetics trading protocol so it allows people to trade synthetics financial product in a trustless way and they have a very interesting liquidity model where there is basically no slippage because instead of actually swapping these synthetic assets you are putting down collateral and then taking out a loan and then re-nominating your loan in different units instead of actually trading these different units so there's no slippage when it comes to trading and they also recently had this demo on layer 2 which allows for uh, kind of faster uh, faster speed when it comes to trading. And I think the settlement time for an average transaction was like 200 to 300 milliseconds. So it almost mirrors centralized exchanges. That team has been incredible at just shipping new features, listening to the community. Uh, I think Kane, their CEO, is incredibly active on their own Discord channel, just listening to what the community wants. And as users and investors of the platform, we are, we're really excited.
0: Comparing synthetics to Curve, for example, how do you think these two projects differ? Because, as I understand, for Curve, you can also switch between stablecoins, like close to no slippage. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's two quite different projects. I think the thesis for synthetics is really speculation focused. So if they're trying to build maybe the FTX, but a decentralized version is the best way to characterize it. So you can go on there, you can trade synthetic gold, you can trade synthetic Bitcoin, you can trade inverse Bitcoin just by depositing collateral in their native token, uh, the synthetics token. Mm-hmm. So I guess the use case there is more from a speculation perspective, whereas for Curve, the value proposition is slightly different in the sense that it offers a like-kind exchange for different assets. So say I hold USDC, which is the stable coin issued by a Circle. I want to swap it to USDT, Tether, which is more liquid because mm-hmm. it's more traded on more places. And I want to swap large amounts of that. So typically what people would do is maybe they go on an exchange and they try to sell it. But the liquidity often isn't that good depending on where you are. You could incur huge slippage. You could lose out, you know, 2-3% depending on the size that you're moving. Or now you can go to Curve, which is this decentralized exchange and swap these two assets, USDC to USDT with incredibly low slippage because of their unique design. And you can do that for pretty much any stable coin out there and also any like kind assets. So any wrapped representation of Ethereum or any wrapped representation of Bitcoin, you can swap it on Curve.
0: I see. Very interesting. It almost becomes hard to distinguish, especially because, again, due to composability, right, you're talking about something like yield farming, people tend to talk about all these protocols, you know, string them in one sentence, basically, like doing this on this protocol and on that protocol. And then this is how you magically get 100% APR. (laughs) So it becomes very hard to distinguish. But at the same time, I feel like throughout this series, it will be important to break down what are the fundamental building blocks within DeFi that enable the composability and for new users coming into the DeFi space, whether they be crypto native or not, to understand where to start. What would you say to these newer DeFi participants as they kind of explore this yield farming journey?
1: Yeah, so I guess even taking a step back kind of offering some context so yield farming is predominantly about two things right so number one is incentivizing people to use your platform by paying you some sort of rebate for using their platform and number two is distributing governance of a platform by basically issuing tokens to heavy users of the platform it's So risky for some of these newer projects, as you mentioned, right? There's a lot of smart contract risk for some projects that are just coming out on the block these past two weeks, they don't even have any audits yet. So I'll be hard pressed to find any institutional investor with outside Mm -hmm. capital with LP money, who can Mm -hmm. reasonably put a lot of capital into this. So what happens is that most of the people who do yield mining are retail. Instead of uh, having kind of cartelization where you have massive funds holding a large amount of the tokens, you actually have a lot of retails or maybe some whales holding some of the tokens instead. So I, th- I think that's a really interesting and uh, fundamentally disruptive development in DeFi. Now in terms of the risks, there are many. Um, so number one is the price risk. So people need to understand where these 1000% APY returns are coming from. It's coming from the price of the governance tokens that are being distributed being propped up on relatively illiquid exchange so the moment the prices unwind, the APYs will come down. Your bet is not just on receiving this APY. Your bet is also on the price of the tokens. You're fundamentally taking a long view when you engage in yield farming, unless you're immediately selling some of your yield, of course. Mm-hmm. But even if you're doing that, there's still smart contract risk. So there are a lot of projects that really leverage this compostability um, feature where they plug into other projects, they incentivize usage on other projects. Um, and there are a lot of um, kind of compounding risks Because even if you think this project, project A is incredibly safe, if they're plugging into say project B, which in turn plugs into project C and D for certain parts of the features, as long as one part of it collapses, it's still a massive risk. So I personally wouldn't make yield farming the main part of my strategy. I know guys who put in their entire book into yield farming. That's not something that I would do.
0: So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. So Jason, just to continue on Yield Farming 101, it's been a way for these newer protocols to incentivize users through this whole liquidity mining process. I just want to make sure that I get it right. Mm. That's what this whole yield farming thing is based on. Right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, And so as part of this process, we're seeing the rise of governance tokens, which has been a very interesting phenomenon. You know, of course, the comp token is the first, if I'm not mistaken, to really popularize the governance token. And the whole compound project has gone through this progressive decentralization, trying to shift the power to the users of the platform. Something interesting that a researcher of Flipside Crypto tweeted, his name's Will Price, is that, and, and I quote here some of the users are interested in governance rights and the long term success of these protocols, but there are others who are more concerned with gaming the incentive systems to maximize their short term. Profits. He basically says that yield farmers, quote unquote, are the ones who are trying to maximize these short term profits. And when a new opportunity arises, you know, that's when yield farmers will so called rotate their crops and move on to the next opportunity. And as an investor, you're obviously thinking with a long-term perspective, but as a hedge fund, you also have to think about the short-term as well, both the risks and the rewards. So what's your take on that sort of push and pull between people who are here for the governance and those who are actually just here to make a quick buck?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in any type of public markets, you have different market participants, right? You have the short-term speculators looking to play an event, or you have people who generally take a long-term view of a company, or in this case, a protocol. Um, And I do think that there's a lot of yield farming going on. If If you look at the capital flows, you will see that the capital tends to flow to whichever project is offering the highest yields, often with no regard for the risk that's baked into some of these newer protocols. But I do think that at some point, um, I think I mentioned this dynamic where longer-term investors, especially institutional investors, probably can't participate in most of the yield farming because of the risks. It's going to be very hard to defend to LPs mm-hmm. if you suddenly lose two percent of your NAV in one day because of a smart contract hack, right. and you're trying to, you know, <laughs> you're, you're trying to do these incredibly complex transactions in DeFi. It's going to be very hard to defend. So what I think will happen is that you have these retail farmers, these whales, who are highly risk tolerant they come in and basically mine these tokens and over time they will swap hands into the longer term investors so people who believe in the long-term potential of the projects they will benefit as long-term holders if the projects succeed and people who are in it for quick buck will also succeed assuming that the products don't fail and the smart contracts don't crash and they are taking on the risk of farming for basically these investors. So I I think there will be a scenario where you have a lot of whales come in, farm these tokens, and then over time, they will swap hands to longer term, kind of stronger hands uh, investors.
0: There's been this really interesting rally we're seeing in the markets with ETH kind of breaking out now past like 300, uh, which it hasn't done in a while. And you can sort of point to different drivers, as you mentioned earlier, things like ETH 2.0 or all of this DeFi craze, right? It's like, it sort of makes sense why capital would be piling into eth with this sort of rip in price you've tweeted that it's so called capital cycling from mid to low cap defi into these larger cap coins bitcoin and ethereum but you say that it takes much more capital to move the big cap so if the capital cycles back it'll be very interesting because that's going to be a whole pool of money presumably new capital that's coming into the defi space and a lot of the use case for defi right now is leverage trading at the end of the day very curious to hear your thoughts on who's coming into the market at this point in time that's driving the bitcoin and ethereum rally
1: yeah so obviously there. are is probably continued interest from new capital ever since the paul tudor jones news about bitcoin i think that probably took away the career risk for a lot of fund managers in the institutional space who have been wanting to allocate to something like bitcoin Now, I don't think institutions are coming into DeFi tokens anytime soon. And I do think the recent move, you can tell by the drawdown of these mid-cap DeFi tokens and the outperformance of ETH and BTC over the past two days, that it's probably people cycling profits from these yield farming or just cycling profits from DeFi tokens in general back into the bigger caps. Part of the reason why ETH has more momentum is also because a lot of the yield that's earned is denominated in ETH as well. So for instance, when people were farming on this new project called Wi-Fi, when they acquired the new Wi-Fi tokens, the most liquid venue to trade that was Wi-Fi against ETH on Balancer or Uniswap. So you suddenly have this new inflow of capital from people who are taking profits in ETH, which probably helped prop up the price a bit as well. But yeah, as you mentioned, I tweeted that the capital required to move something that is high cap and high volume with really thick order books like Ethereum and Bitcoin is much more then the capital required to move some of the lower cap DeFi coins by the same magnitude. So if we do get people who are cycling capital back into things that are trading with $50 million 20 hour volume instead of 50 billion, then I think the price move there could be quite interesting. But it also works both ways, right? You have, you know, 20% drawdown single days in some of the tokens because of how relatively thinly traded they are.
0: Before we move on from DeFi, I'd be curious to find out what something in DeFi you'd like to see improve over the coming year or so? Yeah, so
1: I first caveat that by saying that there has been incredible improvement in DeFi in the past 12 months, that DeFi really has only been around for you know a year. And we already see projects that started with trying to replicate what's happening in the kind of web 2.0 world right? projects trying to build centralized exchanges, but in a trustless setting, uh, but offering terrible user experience to products today in DeFi that are offering fundamentally better experiences than any centralized counterparts. So like we mentioned before, Curve is one of these examples where you can swap stable coins for a lower slippage than most centralized venues. And you have these kind of uh, aggregators which basically allow you to earn a yield on your stablecoin holdings without needing to trust any counterparties. So I think there's a lot of newer products that you know, 12 months ago, I wouldn't have even imagined we could mm-hmm. use today. Now, in terms of what we can improve, I think user experience still needs to go quite a long distance before we reach parity with Web 2.0. Gas fees are still incredibly high on a network like Ethereum. And I would like to see more development on the insurance front as well. Um, With so much risk in DeFi, I think it makes sense for insurance to emerge as a major primitive as well. Besides, you know, lending, trading, leverage, all of these things are sexy and cool. But I do think that insurance is one of the key missing pieces. And there are not a lot of projects working on this. And I'm tracking the few that are working on this very closely.
0: All right. Well, I'll come back to you on that in a few weeks. And, you know, maybe someone (laughs) will come out in beta. Who knows? Uh, But that will be very interesting to watch for sure. Jason, in your recent article, Taking Advantage of Illiquidity and Finding Alpha in Altcoins, you make the point that there's massive inefficiency in the pricing of some low-cap, low-liquidity crypto. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: So just just to give a background, so there's you know hundreds and hundreds of crypto assets listed on different exchanges, some decentralized, some not, um, but most of them are actually incredibly illiquid. So for a median-sized hedge fund in crypto, which is very small, around $5 million, to build any position in things that are beyond the top 50 coins is very hard. It's going to take a few days, uh, if not a few weeks, um, especially the further out the curve you go. Um, So that means that most of the sophisticated investors are not participating Mm -hmm. in the lower cap regions. So that means there's not really any sophisticated price discovery there. So that's why for retail investors who are you know, looking across the token universe, I think there's a lot of alpha to be found by looking in the lower cap regions where there is no sophisticated price discovery yet. Because when these tokens get listed on exchanges, when these tokens start to pick up an interest and finally allow institutions to participate, allow you know, crypto funds and more sophisticated investors to participate, then we will often see a re-rating of the projects. Now, obviously this works both ways. You can have... Projects that are extremely overvalued because of thin float. You just have a few whales who are trying to pump this coin and sell it OTC to funds, and basically trying to shill this product all day on Twitter. Now that it works both ways as well, because when these tokens list on more liquid exchange, you know people can take profit. People who have too big of a position can finally exit, and it could drastically re-rate the price to the downside as well. So what I mean to say with that tweet is that there's just incredible amount of inefficiency when it comes to valuations. So I don't trust the valuation of anything that's, say, below top 50 in coin market cap. But that also gives you ample opportunity to go long, to go short, or whichever. But obviously, this is not financial advice. Just thought I put that disclaimer out there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's your valuation framework for evaluating these types of tokens when they really haven't had product market fit yet? Or do you only look at tokens that are backed by projects that have found product market fit?
1: Yeah, so there are many different ways to value tokens. So I I think it's important to understand the taxonomy of different crypto assets. So there's cryptocurrencies, which are essentially tokens trying to be money, right? You have Bitcoin, you have Litecoin and all these things. So those are a bit harder to value. But for the most part, things in DeFi actually resemble equity in the sense that by holding a token, you are entitled often to a share of the fees generated by users of the platform. It's less like money and and monopoly money than people might think. It's actually... tokens that entitle you to some sort of dividend. Now to perform valuation analysis on these you could perform basic DCFs like traditional finance, but for the most part it's not too actionable in my experience because you don't know what multiples to apply, you don't know what multiples other people are using and as a predominantly retail driven market, valuations can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do is look at a lot of relative valuation plays. So one of the plays that we made last year was looking at something like Kyber Network and 0x both of which are decentralized exchanges. And we were looking at the volume that is generated on these decentralized exchanges and the fees that are generated. And we realized at that time that Kyber was generating multiples of 0x volume consistently um, for a long period of time, but the valuation was a fraction of the ZRX token. So to us, that screams inefficiency. So a good trade to have done was, you know, long-hand C, uh, short 0x, or even just long-hand C, which we've done and we've been quite happy about. So it, it's really placed like that in terms of kind of relative valuation plays that are easier to make. But over time, I do think we'll see more sophisticated valuation frameworks. And I'm a huge fan of people like Chris Berniski, who wrote this book called Crypto Assets, as well as a few other analysts on the show that I'm pretty sure, you know, your, your listeners would have heard from on Twitter because they're often quite vocal.
0: Jason, as we close out the conversation about DeFi, I definitely wanted to touch on some of the things that are going on over here in Asia. What's interesting that you and I talked about prior to recording is the user dynamics within DeFi. And I wanted to have you share your thoughts on what you're seeing here in Asia, who's participating on what protocols.
1: Yeah. So I think part of the attraction to DeFi is the composability, right? You can plug into any project without permission. That means you can do innovation pretty much anywhere on earth. So I think people have this impression that a lot of DeFi development is happening in Silicon Valley because the first batch of DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, DYDX, Dharma, are all based in San Francisco. But that, that's actually no longer the case, right? You have projects like Hybrid, that's based in Singapore. You have REN, which allows you know cross-chain swaps, that's based in Singapore. I believe AirSwap's based in Hong Kong. You have Band Protocol based in Thailand. Balancer, I think the CEO, Fernando, is based in Portugal. So you have these projects that are based all over the world already. So it's very much a global phenomenon. But in terms of the users, obviously, it's hard to tell where exactly the users are because it's all pseudonymous. But I'd assume that a lot of the people who are tinkering with yield farming, a lot of people who are trading on DEXs, who are very active users of these decentralized protocols are based in Asia, Um, particularly in regimes with no capital gains taxes. Because if you're yield farming as a US citizen and you're trading uh, on these decentralized exchanges... Texas will be an absolute nightmare. Very true. I think that's part of the reason why you see kind of these incredibly vocal folks from you know Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, who's using these DeFi protocols, and also do think that culturally there's also there's also a gambling element to it in the sense that you know in, in, in places like you know China, Korea, gambling is pretty much illegal. But when it comes to crypto, it's basically their proxy to satiate that appetite. So you also see massive, very localized, but very vocal and very fervent communities in China and Korea, especially back in 2017, where there was pretty much no oversight. You have uh, crazy volumes coming out from Korea and these kimchi premium where everything was marked up by, you know, 10, 15%. So I do think a lot of the driver for demand for DeFi will come from Asia because of these reasons. And that's part of the reason why we think we're a pretty important partner for, for projects, especially for some of our venture investments, right? Because we give them the exposure to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Our teams have spent decades in China as well. This is something that I don't think any DeFi projects can ignore. They have to target this part of the world.
0: Well said. Jason, I've learned a whole ton from you during our conversation. I can't let you go, though without asking you one of my favorite questions. What's your most contrarian view as an investor that you can share with us today?
1: Yeah, I think this is funny because this might surprise some people. I think I mentioned in a previous interview, uh, the host basically surprised me with this question that, uh, what are your three biggest holdings? And I didn't want to give away my holdings. So I gave him some, <laughs> some false information. I told him, you know, I, I love Monero, uh, but I'm, I, I'm actually quite bearish in privacy coins. And to a certain extent, kind of feature differentiated currencies, right? So any asset whose main thesis is to be some sort of currency, to be some sort of a money, and the way to differentiate is by some sort of feature, either governance or privacy. Because... I think the rise of stablecoins, first of all, we see billions of dollars in stablecoins this past year, they have pretty much defeated the need for most utility tokens and currency specific tokens, right? Why transact in a hyper-volatile and illiquid random token when you can transact in you know, stablecoin denominated in, in USD or Hong Kong dollar or whatever? And I think there can be only so many moonshot currencies with these independent monetary policies that become widely adopted enough to matter. So... I I simply cannot see a future where, you know, I I pay my barber in Litecoin, pay my Uber in Decred and transact every day in Monero and hold my savings in Zcash. I don't think that's going to happen. And I, I do think liquidity begets more liquidity and memes will feed into memes. That's why you see Bitcoin has never been dethroned in the past 10 years despite these new currencies with better features. That's kind of my uh, contrarian thesis there. I don't know if it's contrarian actually, I feel like a lot of people probably feel the same.
0: Well, my previous guest, John McAfee, might uh, disagree (laughs) with you on Monero and where that will go and he's (laughs) creating his own privacy coin as well. (laughs) We'll just close out here with a quick round of rapid fire. Are you ready?
1: Yes, let's do it.
0: Jason, you and I both spent a fair amount of time in Philly. What was your favorite spot in the city?
1: Oh man. Anywhere in Center City, I'd say campus. I I I don't want to. I I think this is kind of cop out, but I like Locust Walk at Penn Campus.
0: Elon Musk is a hero of yours. You didn't talk about that earlier, but did my homework. (laughs) What's your favorite Elon Musk project and why?
1: I think SpaceX is incredibly inspiring. I don't think anyone's trying to go to Mars, and certainly no one's made money doing it.
0: And if you had to choose, would you be a Bitcoin maximalist or Ethereum diehard? Uh,
1: I feel like I get certain leeway with being an Ethereum diehard because I could get exposure to Bitcoins through kind of the wrapped products. So I'd go with Ethereum.
0: Jason, it's been a pleasure. How can our listeners connect with you and find out more about Spartan?
1: Yeah. So for those who want to follow me personally, you can go on Twitter at Mr. Jason Choi. That's my handle. I will post everything about my podcast, any blog posts that I put out there. Uh, for Spartan, we also tweet at the Spartan Group. And those are kind of our main two channels.
0: Great. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the Crypto Unstacked podcast. Really great to have you on share your thoughts and hope to bring you on again very soon.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Leslie. This was really fun.
0: As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambeau. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.